Hello and welcome to Beyond Japan, an interdisciplinary podcast that looks at the broad reach of Japanese studies from within and beyond Japan. This podcast is brought to you by the Center for Japanese Studies at the Sainsbury Institute for the Study of Japanese Arts and Cultures, in collaboration with the, with the University of East Anglia. I'm your host, Oliver Moxham, Project Support Officer at the Sainsbury Institute and researcher of Japanese war heritage. This week we are joined by Professor Wolfram Mandenreiter of the University of Vienna to discuss Japanese diasporas, taking a look at what can be learned from diaspora communities both in the millions, such as those of Brazil, the USA and Peru, and in the thousands in the areas like Mexico, Paraguay and Canada. We will also consider the connection between these communities and their indigenous roots in Japan, as well as the relationship between the historic Japanese migration and the strategies of the Japanese empire. We hope you enjoy the show. Good morning, Wolfram. Thank you for joining us on the podcast today. Hello. Good morning. So, uh, first of all, I'd like to know a bit more about you. Can you tell us about your area of expertise and how your interests have brought you there? Sure, yeah. Well, thanks, first of all, no, thank you for uh, having me on the show. And it's always um, a pleasure of um, making use of the new technologies we have you know, to spread our research findings and also to extend our networks. I don't know if you're familiar with the Japan lecture series that my department has started about a year ago. Well, I think we are kind of following the same mission of transmitting scholarship towards a larger audience. So, well, coming back then to me and to my interest in the Japanese diaspora, I have a background in Japanese studies. I always use social sciences, that is, um, theories and methods that are of currency in sociology and social anthropology in order to make sense out of phenomena that are related to Japanese society. So my first independent research project was on making sense out of pachinko, the Japanese gambling industry. From then on, I shifted towards the practices of sport, particularly the social history of mountaineering, to understand the particularities in which the sport of mountain climbing is organized and practiced among Japanese, well, professional and, of course, amateur um, aficionados of the mountain sport. My next projects were on football. The introduction of professional football in Japan uh, started in the 1990s and the uh, huge development, interest in football, football fandom, football culture was making in the country throughout the 1990s and the early 2000s and shifted me towards developing an interest in the form of sport events and in particular large sport events, so-called mega events like the Football World Cup were very conveniently um, hosted by Japan and South Korea in 2002 and the Olympics as another sport mega events were really the prototype of sport mega events that uh, kept me interested, my, my, my research interest up for something like 10 to 15 years. So uh, without having used the word of globalization in my very early publications or early research projects, I came to realize that what I was looking at in well, well, was practically nothing else but the globalization of culture. And this is 
not just related to the global spread of ideas and practice, but also to the migration of people, of images, and of, um, well, cultural knowledge. Um, this came quite convenient at a time when the University of Vienna was developing a research network focused on issues of um, migration. I have always been closely related to people at the different departments and institutions that had a common interest in developmental issues, more from a perspective of developmental um, economy than de developmental sociology. But uh, in reality, these interests then brought me towards looking at Japanese diaspora. As a student of Japanese studies, I myself was not highly aware of the huge ramification that migration has had throughout the 20th century on Japan, notions of Japaneseness, practices of Japaneseness within and outside of the Japanese territory. But um, in the course of studying essential readings, going back to the classics in the field, I came to realize that this is not just a minor issue, but quite central to some of the questions that are of interest for, well, social anthropologists or cultural anthropologists of Japan, essentially what makes a case Japanese, no? or how do people in Japan make sense out of certain things like home, family, origin, ancestorship, religion, and so on. So let's start by getting a sense of Japanese diasporas. Diaspora refers to the mass dispersion of a population from its indigenous territories, something we might associate with Chinatowns and cities across the world, for example. However, the Japanese are not commonly considered a migratory people, with limited use of their language outside of Japan. Could you therefore start off by explaining how you define diaspora before pointing out the most notable Japanese diasporas and the history behind their migrations? Yeah, well, um, diaspora researchers no, traditionally are focused on, or I have been traditionally focused on one particular historical experience of the mass dispersion of a people from its homeland across the world and then made analogies with similar cases, related cases, no, asking are these the same symptoms, the same events or consequences of the phenomena we are interested in. So it's more like a descriptive analogy, a descriptive category in which diaspora studies developed around the term of diaspora. This is something that has been changed in the course of a 50-60 year research history, particularly in the 1980s. I think the constructivist turn started to take a different look at diaspora, more taking the perspective of people involved Uh, into consideration rather than using a matrix or a form from outside. And then we also have a little bit later, maybe also at the same time, post-structuralist approaches that were equally questioning the way how the uh, actor-centered notion of diaspora is actually capturing the essential qualities and they were more focusing the interest on discursive practices 
So my own uh, understanding is a kind of combination or my line of thought combines the material dimension, the discursive and the practical dimensions. The material in a sense as um, the notion of diaspora is related to space, to spaces, to not always very clearly defined separation between something that is considered to be the, the common focus of interest as a place of origin as a place of future destiny and a place of um, current homemaking, of current residence. The discursive dimension is related to the symbols in which the connection towards this other space is sustained, kept alive, recreated, and uh, how institutions in daily life, in the social arrangement or the political order of the diaspora communities, uh, recreating this sense of relation to the space of where they actually should be or probably coming from. And the practical dimension is related to the fact that you need on the side of the individual a certain sense of contribution, of commitment to the idea of belonging to migrant community to participate in ritual events in the institutions of self-organization or of um, heritage making in order to keep the uh, discursive dimensions alive. Fascinating. So in your recent article, uh, Squared Diaspora, representations of the Japanese diaspora across time and space, you highlight the necessity to not focus on the largest communities of the USA, Brazil and Peru, instead arguing for the value of researching smaller communities across Central America and Canada. Could you explain this necessity for us in more detail? Yeah, uh, why focus on smaller communities? I think um, to a certain degree, size matters and size doesn't no? when you make a decision about where to look at in order to understand or to get a better understanding of the theoretical dimensions of the diaspora concept. So uh, since size matters, I think that's basically the reason why a second or third generation of migrants ne, have developed a kind of interest in going back to the roots of where their migrating ancestors were coming from, what is left or what has been buried in the course of decades of integration or assimilation in order to get a better understanding of their own sense of diasporic members living in a new home country. I think this is kind of a quite common pattern. So while the first generation or the second generation is struggling hard to make success, the third generation then uh, develops quite often the cultural resources or capital in order to go back you know, to the roots, either in terms of an academic research project or an academic career, or otherwise in terms of uh, voluntary organization activities in the local community, or maybe even just on, on a very private level on like doing biographical research. There is a network initiative, I think established already in the 1990s, but uh, that flourished with the spread of the internet, Discover Nikkei, and it's a four language uh, web project making use of 
statements in Brazil, uh, in Portuguese, in Spanish, English, and Japanese on the experience of living as someone with a Japanese background in places outside of Japan. So I think size matters in a sense that in these uh, larger destinations, naturally, there is a larger amount of people that may develop this kind of interest and embark on an academic career or on an academic research project in order to um, retell the history or rewrite the history of their people. And uh, we, we have a substantial amount of literature in three languages at least, ne? covering the experiences of the migration history to the United States, to Brazil, and to some degree also to Peru. But I found it difficult to find literature on those other places in which smaller amounts of the Japanese uh, emigrants arrived in the course of the second half of the 20th century, most notably um, Well, Argentina, Bolivia, Paraguay, Chile, in the southern part of the Americas, but also in the Latin American areas in Central America, Cuba, Venezuela, in um, Mexico, of course, too. Yeah. But a closer look no, at the experiences people have been making in these places, no, they display an astonishing variety of what it means to be living in the diaspora. And I think just concentrating on those few well-documented cases runs the risk of ignoring the multitude, the diversity of experiences in the diasporas. This is the reason why I prefer to use the plural term rather than the singular when speaking about the experiential dimension of living in the di diaspora. So we have a dearth of information on migration history and settlement in these smaller destinations, but a plurality of experiences and dimensions within one place, within one country, which is nothing smaller than in the larger areas. I think some of the reasons are pretty obvious, like the duration of the settlement history, to what degree assimilation or inclusion has been going on, the way how the Japanese state has provided political support for the early establishment efforts. Also, the place of origin is highly significant, particularly given that a large number of migrants is coming from the ethnically distinct group of Okinawaians, which have their own sense of home and their own traditions and their own um, uh, ways of establishing a sense of global Ochinachu or um, global consciousness of uh, the Ryukyu diaspora. Then also the, uh, the, there are huge differences in the way how emigrants and their offspring experience their sense of belonging, how they see their own future trajectories, their own professional careers, their own possibilities of becoming part of society, depending on the urban or rural 
conditions of the place of residence. Particularly in urban areas, there are more opportunities. There is a larger spread of um, network connectivity points that undermine or underhollow the ambitions of the uh, diaspora organizations, quite contrary to rural areas where the grip of these organizations on each and every single member is much stronger also in the sense of how the notion of Japanese-ness is used as a resource for their own economic well-being. So speaking of um, Japanese-ness, in my experience of interviewing members of the Japanese community in Sheffield for an oral history project, I was struck by how many in the community spoke of how their own family had told them they were no longer Japanese after spending some 20 years in the UK. While I appreciate this is anecdotal, through your own research, what sense do you have of the relationship between diasporas and the Japanese homeland? Yeah, I would say, well, my own um, insights are no less anecdotal than yours, given that there is a wide diversity of responses now people may give you depending on some of the uh, conditional features that are outlined uh, in my response to your previous questions. But um, I rather found striking in my um, observations that particularly in the rural settlements in places like Paraguay or Bolivia, I often found, well, among the elite members to whom I was most uh, often speaking about these issues, the notion or the idea that Japan itself, since they left, has changed to a degree that they would rather think that the real Japan is the place where they are living or where they are practicing their community life whereas Japan has changed to a degree that it's no longer the real place. So I think this is an interesting observation from the viewpoint of the diaspora and the question of where is home and uh, where is the host country. This tension, I think, is also stressed by the fact that a large number of families, I would say probably each and every household, has a member that has been or is currently living and working in Japan. And the experiences the well families are making with the way how their well family members abroad are staying in touch or delivering what they were supposed to to do what they expected them to do, that is basically contributing to the household uh, income by um, remittances. And uh, this is not always the case. So quite often, Tom, there is a striking gap no, between the expectations of going abroad, making it big, no, coming back no, with riches in order to keep the family lineage alive in the uh, diaspora community is not really paying off. And this is an interesting 
mirror of the migration experience of the first generations of people that left Japan in the pre-war area or in the early years after Second World War. I think in a similar way, you know, people were expecting them to make success abroad in order to come back to Japan. But the reality they faced once they arrived, well, back then in South America, these days, nowadays, when they arrive in Japan, is quite different from what they were told the image they found in the media or in accounts of um, people that have been there before or people that are making a living out of brokering migrants ne, into the industries. I think this is quite interesting to, to the sense that um, we, we, we find this, the same kind of um, differences between experiences or the shared experiences at the place of origin where a migrant is coming from and the reality they face at the place of destination and the difficulties of migrating these different realities in the communication with the family at home yes so in uh, 2014 you presented your research at a conference on uh, global diasporas in the age of high imperialism, comparing different global migrants' communities and their relation to colonial expansion. Uh, through my own research of the Japanese Empire, it's refreshing to see it included in global colonial narratives, but what insights are gained f through comparing Japanese diasporas in this transnational context? Yeah, I think comparison is highly instructive in order to make the Japanese case really a case, not just something like an exemption or an aberration. There is a lot of reason to look at each and every national emigration history or every uh, ethnic diaspora as a case of itself. But that is pretty much a problem of the analytical level. On the descriptive level, there is so much of diversity and of singularity that it's difficult to make common cases. But on a deeper level with analytical insight, you can actually well, develop the case into a case study in order to gain better understanding of the significance, for example, of structural forces that shape the building, the formation of diasporas. No, like the geopolitical conditions, like state ambitions, like the role the state is playing as a broker itself for emigrating its population or of making use out of its population abroad as a kind of um, colonial outpost or as a diplomatic um, stronghold for um, facilitating uh, state ambitions in the area. So I'm curious as to how you mentioned that many Japanese were first sent to the Americas under an initiative by the pre-war Japanese governments to integrate Japanese Americans in the Americas into a greater empire. Uh, how successful were these initiatives and what marks differences are there today between diasporas which remain, remain in former colonies of the Japanese empire and those which migrated to the Americas? Yeah, well, um, I think this is a history of uh, ambitions and a history of ambivalence. 
So the historical records you know, of the early 20th century you know, display a variety of strategic interests, you know, foreign policy or diplomacy in Japan, also the, the military or uh, ministries related to trade and industry are having in regard to a larger presence of Japanese abroad. This is maybe related to sourcing, to gaining access to markets or to producers that are used for industrial refinement, like um, cotton, for example, or these days like soy and other staple that are essential for more well, keeping up the wealth and the riches of some of the rural um, Japanese communities in South America. Well, there was a diversity of ambitions and in the sense they worked out when the state or its affiliated organizations abroad were able to deliver on the demands of the emigrant communities like organizations now run by the Japanese state in order to develop the area, to start out agricultural activities, to provide access to loans. So wherever a preferential treatment was expected and awarded to the emigrants, I think uh, the state was successful in maintaining a sense of Japaneseness within the community and also making use of the investments as strategic investments into building up political relations with the host nations. So Japanese capital was highly regarded in particular provinces of Brazil, in places of Bolivia or Paraguay in order to well, give a kickstart not to the agricultural development of the country. So, and to some degree, um, at some point of time, Japanese emigrant farmers were seen as the most successful provider of food and of new products to the Brazilian agricultural food market. So I think this is one part of the story. There's always another part in the sense that the settlers are not always speaking with one language. There is tension between elites, elites related to the state organizations and um, diverging interests. And sources from the local newspapers hmm, printed in Japanese hmm, in the early decades now of the Japanese immigration history are quite revealing to show how these conflicts now are played out between different camps of the colonies. So as a greater empire, empire politics, making use of settlers, of settler communities in order to spread the political influence of the home country in the host society was successful for some industrial ambitions, but not necessarily for diplomatic issues, as was seen very drastically during the 1920s, 1930s, 1940s, when a number of countries consecutively 
closed their doors towards immigrants from Japan. So I think there is this is the uh, experience of the Americas, and I can't say to what degree it, it makes sense no, of comparing this experience with the way how uh, the colonies were working in the Japanese Empire in historical terms, since this is not my field of expertise. I bet that there has been a similar history of ambivalence between the interest of the colonial administration, people affiliated or benefiting from the colonial organizational structure and those that were looking for their own fortune and for their own way of making a living outside of the Japanese homeland in the colonies. But I don't think that today we can meaningfully refer to this background no? when speaking about the Japanese living in Korea and in uh, Taiwan or in mainland China and the um, people in America. Thank you for answering my questions. Before we finish the episode, could you share with us what projects you are currently working on? Well, most of my research these days no, is related to the issue of happiness and my interest in what makes life worth living in Japan is something that developed in the early um, 2010 years. And another project that I try to keep up as well as possible is um, a similar notion of uh, well-being in rural Japan. So about six years ago, I developed a research project on well-being in rural Japan, connecting to the history of uh, community research that our department had started 50 years ago in the late 1960s. We basically went back into the same area. We had the opportunity of connecting with people who remembered very well how their grandfathers were conferring with the first foreigners they had seen in their villages. So we can build on the cultural capital our own ancestors left in that area. Doing fieldwork is a bit difficult these days, and uh, with all the time we have to spend in front of uh, screens with um, distant learning, teaching, administrating, running a department, I uh, barely find time myself these days to keep up my own research. But members of my research team are quite productive, prolific, contributing to the common research project. Great. Well, we look forward to seeing what comes out of that. Thank you, Wolfram. It's been a pleasure. Yeah, it was a pleasure talking to you. Thanks for the brilliant questions. You can find a link to Wolfram's research profile in the description below. Next week, we'll be sharing our very first Japanese language episode with Kikuchi Yoshio, professor of archaeology at Fukushima University, to discuss archaeology of Kofun burial mounds in areas hit by the 311 Great East Japan tsunami 10 years ago. For our non-Japanese-speaking audience, English subtitles will be available on our YouTube channel. We hope you'll join us then. Thank you for listening.